This is Seriously Social, the podcast where Australia's best social scientists help us understand the social impacts of the COVID-19 crisis. It's brought to you by the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia and hosted by Ginger Gorman. Hello, lovely to have you with us for this inaugural episode of Seriously Social. These are very strange times and all of our lives have been impacted by this global pandemic in unexpected and rapidly changing ways. During this podcast, we will use the lens of the social sciences to help us consider how COVID-19 is impacting Australian society, our relationships, human connections and societal structures. We'll get new insights and think about things in new ways. With me now is Australian National University History Professor and Fellow of both the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia and the Australian Academy of the Humanities, Frank Bongiorno. Frank, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Ginger. How has the pandemic affected you personally? Well, like, I guess, millions of people now, I'm working at home. Uh, So I'm here with my wife, who's also working from home, uh, and my daughter, who's a 14-year-old high school student, uh, is also taking her classes here at home. So we're tripping over one another a bit um, during the day and, and, you know, sort of struggling to find our little corner of the house that's quiet and suits our work habits. But um, we're getting there, I think. Although you did say to me uh, previously that your daughter, who's a teenager, has been helping you with all the stay-at-home tech. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're finding out who, you know, is really essential in the world at the moment. And I can assure you that, yeah, teenagers are essential because uh, they do it a lot more naturally uh, than uh, the, the, the rest of us. So, yeah, she's been a great advisor on technical matters. And she's actually helped you, I know, today so that we could record the podcast uh, in a sort of patched together, stay at home, work from home manner. Frank, when something global and catastrophic like this happens, what does history have to offer? Yes, I've been really struck by the ways in which history seems to be almost everywhere at the moment. Um, it's a period, as we just said, of great uncertainty. And I think in those circumstances, people often turn to something that seems a little bit more solid, uh, previous crises, previous episodes, um, things that seem in some way comparable. And obviously the most, you know, the one that kind of stands out uh, initially is previous pandemics. And, um, you know, certainly I know that my colleagues at the moment, historians, are, are looking at all sorts of pandemics so and epidemics of the past some well-known, some rather obscure, to try and get a sense of what can be learnt from those. Um, In my own case, uh, for the first time, I think in well over 30 years, I had a look at um, Thucydides' famous account of the Plague of Athens, which occurred during the Peloponnesian War and which is in his, you know, his history um, written those millennia ago. And, you know, there's so much in it that seems modern. You know, he talks about um, doctors, for instance, um, dying of, of the plague uh, in Athens because, you know, they were obviously very much in the front line and very vulnerable to, to catching it from their patients. He talks about people wanting to be social and, and wanting to support others and uh, not being able to do it or going and doing it anyway and getting the plague themselves. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are turning to those those earlier episodes to see how people coped, 
what were the the kinds of problems what did people think you know was was useful what did people think was harmful in those previous circumstances and of course we're seeing huge numbers of medical staff in places like Iran and Italy and Spain getting covid-19 and some of them are tragically dying from it as you say yeah it's happening again and and it was really eerie in some ways to read that uh you know uh all those all those centuries ago, very, very similar sort of thing. And it's, you know, it's a very famous description of, of a plague and, and it's harrowing, you know, when he describes the physical, the physical aspects of it. Do you think there's a kind of shock, Frank, because we like to feel in modern society with all our modern medicine and science that this couldn't happen to us when in fact it is really reminiscent of something like the Spanish flu which hit the world really, but hit Australia in the kind of nineteen, you know, nineteen eighteen around that time. I was surprised when I first read about the Spanish flu again many years ago, by the ways in which a lot of the assumptions of the federation, you know, of Australia as a federal country, seemed to to collapse almost immediately. States closing borders and all sorts of restrictions on the movement of people, camps being set up on borders because people were being placed in quarantine. And I thought, gee, how odd that uh, that's what happened back in 1919. And here we are a century on, very similar sorts of policies being pursued by state and territory governments today as a way of, of, of managing the crisis. So there's a, a lot to be learned. I mean, if you look at that, the, the way in which governments managed the Spanish influenza in Australia in 1919, you know, many of the issues that we faced uh, again were there. The, the, the problem, uh, the challenge of managing relationships between governments, between state uh, and federal government. Also, local government was hugely important in 1919. Um, in many instances, local authorities were given primary responsibility, really, for managing the flu in their particular localities. This morning, I was looking at news from the United States, and really, the catastrophe is just unfolding there. And a question popped into my mind that I think you might be the best person to answer, which is, is the fact that federalism is a lot weaker in the United States actually hampering their ability to deal with this? Because, you know, they do not have, uh, obviously they do have a federal government, but they do not have the strength of federal government because of the political system that we have here. Their states have a lot more power and a lot more rights. And I just wondered how that was playing into the way that the tragedy was unfolding there. Yeah, I think that that sounds reasonable to me as an explanation. It's obviously a lot more complex in the US too, given that you're talking about 50 state governments. Uh, in, in the Australian case, um, we're really only talking about six state governments and two territory governments. Uh, it's no doubt much easier to manage. But I, I'm also, I guess, struck by um, the fact that we do, you know, we have had for many decades now, um, machinery that, that effectively facilitates cooperation between different levels of government around particular issues. I mean, we've had COAG since the early 1990s, for instance, and, and effectively what we're seeing is is a kind of a, a building on that for the purposes of dealing with this crisis. And I think that, you know, when you already have a kind of path dependency, that is, you have, you know, um, certain habits of, of, 
operating and certain institutions already sitting there, I think it makes it much easier to actually manage those in a crisis such as this one. How is what is happening in the United States going to impact us in Australia in the long run in terms of this COVID-19 crisis? Well, the United States, you know, remains, I think, the biggest economy in the world. I mean, it's being rivaled by China these days, but it's it's still an enormous economy, an enormously important economy. And clearly, if the United States were to go into a major economic crisis, and it does appear that that's one of the consequences of, of COVID-19 for the US at the moment, you would expect that to have implications for Australia. I mean, we live in a very interconnected global economy and it would be very difficult. I mean, certainly thinking historically when you have major economic problems in the United States, they, they usually flow on to Australia. Now, the, the global financial crisis of 2008 revealed that there were aspects of Australia's economy and of its place in the world that did give it some degree of insulation. And in that case, I think it was the relationship with China in particular that was incredibly important. But a, a major economic catastrophe in the US uh, would surely, you know, have all sorts of flow-on effects for Australia, and and you know that that it, you know, would certainly be very much consistent with precedent over a very long run, basically in terms of Australia's economic history. This is seriously social. And talking of economic history, I have to say that those photographs and news shots of Australians lining up outside Centrelink probably about a couple of weeks ago now, but uh, they've brought it more online now so people can do a lot of that online. But just the queues around the block in some of the major cities really reminded me of Australian photographs but also American photographs from the Depression in the early 30s of men really lining up outside soup kitchens and lining up for the dole. Um, that This is part of your expertise in labour and the labour market. How do you see this playing out in terms of unemployment and the way that that's going to impact us socially but also economically? Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising that we would think back to, you know, that economic disaster of the 30s um, and we do associate it particularly with with mass unemployment. Um, but we also, we associate it with the mass unemployment of men, don't we? It was a very different sort of economy uh, in Australia in 1930. It was uh, still much more um, rurally based. I mean, we, we relied much more on rural production and particularly rural exports than today. Um, it was a much more industrialised economy than we have today. Um, and it was an economy uh, dominated by male paid workers um, in, in a way that uh, our economy isn't today. So we're operating in a, a different, I think, economic and social environment. Um, the, the welfare state was very rudimentary in 1930 in Australia. There was no unemployment benefit outside of Queensland. Queensland did have a, a, a system very recently established system of unemployment insurance, but basically you didn't have the dole, you didn't have unemployment benefits. And so um, very quickly, state governments, local government, what we now call NGOs, voluntary organisations of one kind or another, basically got into the process of, of offering relief of one kind or another. Governments offered relief work, but it was very male-orientated relief work reflecting, I think, 
the, the fact that Australia was a, a male breadwinner state. Now, we have a much more complex economy today. We obviously have one in which men and women work. Um, we, we do have a much more developed welfare state, although, you know, I think most of us would probably agree that aspects of it have, um, you know, experienced underinvestment in recent years, that the system probably isn't very well designed to deal with the, the possibility of mass unemployment. Um, and there's obviously a lot of, you know, very quick adaptation going on. But, you know, we, I think there are buffers actually that exist in 2020 that weren't there in, in 1930 around issues like unemployment, uh, around eviction and homelessness, which um, was a, a major problem, again, in the depression of the 1930s. Uh, I think m more people were renting, more families were renting in those days. It was, you know, standard, I think, really, for working class families uh, to, to, to rent their homes and they were very vulnerable to being evicted. Now, that is a problem again, but I think, uh, you know, we're seeing governments, I think, playing a much more active role around these sorts of issues than they did back in 1930. Frank, is it because of what we've seen perhaps in the Depression that we are seeing governments, state, territory and federal moving very fast to stop evictions, moving very fast to bring on board lots of different kinds of payments for businesses and individuals who might be suffering. Like they're actually doing it rapidly, whereas in the 30s we didn't see it. Is it a lesson learned, do you think? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the, the 1930s, the Depression was an absolutely formative experience in terms of, you know, recalibrating, redesigning policy in Australia. I mean, the, the, the major renovation and extension of the welfare state that occurred in the 1940s was, was very much a product of the memory of the Depression and all of the gaps that the Depression had, had exposed in social protection in Australia, that there wasn't a proper system of, of, of unemployment benefits, that, you know, that there weren't protections for tenants, a, a whole range of, of, of problems of that kind. So, yeah, when, when um, governments of both stripes, actually, from about 1941 onwards, started acting, they did introduce various forms of welfare that hadn't been there during the Depression. And of course, other other reforms as well, reforms to banking, for instance, you know, which gave the government a much stronger role in, in macroeconomic management of, you know, which our government today, our federal government, is an heir to. I mean, it, it's its primary role in, in something like the current stimulus that we're seeing is very much a product of the problems that were exposed during the Depression when the Scullin government simply didn't have the power over things like money supply to be able to deal with the crisis. And so it found it had very few instruments for actually managing uh, a, a, a problem of, of national solvency, basically. And a, a lot of the policy reforms of the later 30s, 1940s, um, 1950s were really designed to give the federal government much more capacity to deal with a crisis. So in that sense, we're still, if you like, heirs of that crisis of the depression of the 1930s. How is this going to play out, though, do you think, given that society doesn't actually look the same as it did back then? We are, it's a much more complex society. Services have always been a, a large part of the Australian economy, going right back to colonial times. But we, we now have a very complex services economy. Um, 
and a complex services workforce that it, uh, seems to me very vulnerable to the kind of disruption that we're seeing. I mean, you, you go through, you know, the kinds of, of um, uh, you know, industries one by one, if we're talking about the cafe or the restaurant or the, the, the masseuse, there are a whole range of them that are clearly being immensely disrupted by the crisis that we're seeing. And it, it was a less complex economy, you know, uh, 80, 90 years ago. And, and I, I think that especially our, our dependence on services, we're also much more dependent on the exporter services. You know, that's how we also earn our income in the world. And education, tertiary education is, is an aspect of that. So is tourism. Um, and again, you know, they weren't, a significant part of the economy back in the 1930s or 40s. So that does leave us with all sorts of vulnerabilities that perhaps weren't um, so evident back then. Frank, this period of the Depression obviously happened between the two world wars and after both those wars was a kind of period of reconstruction, if you like. And we're hearing people increasingly in the media and commentators sort of talking about this need to reconstruct society in similar ways after this pandemic. What do you make of that idea? Yeah, so, I mean, post-war reconstruction as a a kind of a concept is usually associated with the Second World War. But in in a lot of ways, you know, what happened during and after the Second World War was a reaction against the disappointments, I think, coming out of the First World War. I mean, I think one of the reasons we don't have much of a collective memory of the Spanish influenza is it kind of just shades into a series of disappointments coming out of the First World War. You know, the idea of uh, creating a land fit for heroes, which is is not a specifically Australian term. It was um, probably more commonly used in Britain after the First World War, but it seemed like a pretty sick joke, you know, once you got into the 20s and particularly the 30s and, you know, uh, you had mass unemployment. It just seemed that the opportunities that, that had been there for a better, a better world coming out of the First World War associated with the League of Nations and all the rest of it just didn't come to pass. So there was a much stronger determination in the 1940s um, to to build something better. And and in Australia, governments are already talking about post-war reconstruction as early as 1940. I mean, the the war had barely begun and there's already discussion of what it's going to look like on the other side of that war. And uh, just a realisation that politically it would be absolutely impossible to do what had happened after the First World War and, and, you know, to, to create a world where you know, within a few years, you had mass unemployment. And um, a lot of what governments do in Australia during and after the the Second World War is basically designed to ensure that you don't get another depression, that you have layers of social protection that simply hadn't been there in the depression, that that opportunity that, that, you know, a, a major crisis such as a war offers wouldn't go to waste. And you know, you, you do um, also have this argument coming out of the Second World War. Well, we, we suddenly had to fight a war and governments found themselves increasing their spending. Well, in Australia's case, within five years, government spending increased sevenfold. It was just such a massive expansion of government. Um, uh, if you could do that in a war, why couldn't you do it in an economic crisis to deal with things like poverty and, 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 and unemployment? I mean, it's kind of strange in a way to be comparing a pandemic to a war, but this is the kind of language that I'm hearing around me. Are we going to see the same kind of reconstruction 
post-pandemic that we saw post-World War II? Yeah, the one thing historians are not very good at is uh, predicting the future, Ginger. I mean, <laughs> we, we, we tend to be pretty much, uh, uh, you know, as, as good or as bad as anyone else at that. Um, I, I don't know, to, to, you know, to be honest. Um, I, I think that there were political and I, I think kind of also ideological factors that made post-war reconstruction more generous and more feasible in the 40s. Um, than the situation we're moving into now. I mean, obviously, there have been a series of emergency measures that to some extent have been dealing with problems that we already knew were there. I mean, an obvious one was increasing uh, New Start, wasn't it? I mean, that, there was a recognition that the particular payments for, for people who are unemployed were simply not enough to live on, that they'd been stagnant for, what, two decades, I think, um, and that that was unsatisfactory. But no one seemed to be able to do the politics uh, to actually you know, fix the situation until we entered this crisis and overnight the, the payment was doubled, something that would have been unthinkable three months ago. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing is is inevitably, I think, um, you know, prompting people to to imagine that there are all sorts of possibilities for, for actually writing some of the problems with, um, you know, our, our current policy, that, that the policy gridlock that I think so many, well, members of the Academy of Social Sciences, for instance, constantly talk about at our gatherings, you know, perhaps is this the opportunity to break it? But you know, I, I worry, I think, about the more optimistic versions of that because I, I'm unconvinced that the politics are there. Um, you know, we're, we're still in a situation where there are a lot of people who have a lot to lose if there are major policy changes. You know, one thinks of even issues like neg negative gearing, for instance, um, uh, issues, you know, that were prominent at the last election, uh, such as, you know, franking credits, all these kinds of things that, that you know, you might say, well, you know, can we afford that? Can we afford major tax cuts for those at the, at, at the upper end of incomes? Uh, well, probably not. But actually moving away from that politically is still going to be very difficult. And what, one of the differences, I think, with the, 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 the Depression and war generation is they carried enormous moral authority to, to the whole issue of, of reconstruction, you know, the, 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 the fact that you'd had this mass suffering of the depression, the austerity and suffering of the war, um, it, it gave those demanding change incredible moral authority. Now, whether that kind of, if you like, moral capital, if that's the word for it, exists uh, at present, I'm not so sure. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Ginger. Thanks. This episode of the Seriously Social podcast was brought to you by the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia and hosted by Ginger Gorman. For episode notes and transcripts, visit socialsciences.org.au slash podcasts.